Jeremiah 30, verses 1 through 24. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says Yahweh. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says Yahweh, We heard, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and of no peace. Ask now and see. Can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Yet, he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve Yahweh their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares Yahweh, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares Yahweh. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. But of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure. And I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says Yahweh, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares Yahweh, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares Yahweh. 
and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold the storm of Yahweh, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, it will burst on the head of the wicked, the fierce anger of Yahweh will not turn back until he has accomplished, executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, who is like you? And who is like your people that you have redeemed? Father, have mercy on us now for the sake of your name, because of your covenant, your promises. Revive your people. In your King, our priest, we draw near to you, Father, to the throne of grace. And we pray that your promises would bolster us now. They would cause us to persevere. They would strengthen our faith. They would cause us not to fear anything but you, and rightly fearing you, to be free. In Christ's name we ask this, amen. With chapters 30 through 33, it is as though we see the weeping prophet look ahead, anticipating what lies before him in these promises, and gleam with a smile such that you wonder if he's going to swallow his ears. We've seen a twinkle of hope in his eyes before, but now it's as though the sun pierces the darkness, the Clouds quickly dissipate and the sky is blue overhead for a moment, though those storm clouds still lie threatening to the east. This bright spot that we've come to is known as the Book of Consolation. It's just four chapters, the first two of which are poetry and the final two are prose, largely considered. The book opens with a command for Jeremiah to write a book. Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. What's going to be included in this book? In chapter 36, Jeremiah is commanded to write a book. And he's commanded to put into it everything that Yahweh has spoken to him since his calling under the reign of Josiah to the present day at that point, which was the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. Twenty-three years of ministry compiled into one book, which is why we don't read of him delivering that book until the fifth year of King Jehoiakim. I don't think anything so ambitious is at play here. 
the command is to write all the words, but I think it's a very specific set of words. Verse 4, I think, goes on to, to make that plain. These are the words Yahweh spoke. Write all that I, I, I uh, verse, uh, but write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. Verse 4, these are the words Yahweh spoke. I think there's a specific set of words that Jeremiah is supposed to write in this particular book. I think it'll be plain that this book was written sometime after he had already written that big compilation spoken of in chapter 36. So this is written later, but it includes less. This is to be a small book about big promises. This book, I think, has a specific theme. It has an explicit purpose. He's to write these because this book, and he's to write these specific words in this book because days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. So this book is a book that focuses on restoration. Some scholars will limit it to chapters 30 and 31. Others will include 30 through 33, so that this book is the book of consolation, that this section is, it's just received that name. The reason some scholars don't think 32 and 33 are, should be included is because we have specific settings given in chapters 32 and 33 about those prophecies and when they were spoken, when they were delivered. But if the book of Jeremiah, it, well, whenever they were written, if the book of Jeremiah is um, a compilation of things Yahweh is now reiterating, if it's perhaps Yahweh's reminding him of words spoken before, and you'll see that, and, and words freshly spoken and then put together and assembled in a different way, then chapters 32 and 33 help make sense of the book as a whole. Why is Jeremiah writing? Chapter 33, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. So writing might be the only means of communication Jeremiah has available at this point. So this book of consolation would, could contain words that Yahweh spoke, and I think you'll see that the words that Yahweh spoke to him were words that Yahweh had already spoke by and large. Yahweh was compiling words for, Yahweh, for Jeremiah to compile in a fresh, com compact, focused manner. So, while Jeremiah, why, Jeremiah is plainly writing this, first, because God commanded him. Why is Jeremiah writing? God commanded him. But another reason might be is because he's confined and then the explicit reason given as for the aim in this is because days are coming. So then the question is, why is it that coming days necessitate or commend writing? And I'll admit we might be asking the wrong question here. Because Jeremiah might be commanded to write these words simply because of the words themselves. Like, this is the only way Jeremiah has to communicate, and the reason he's to write these words is simply because God wants these words to communicate. So the, the reason given, days are coming, relates to the words, not to the writing of the words. But I think there might be something in write the words, because days are coming. 
Why? I think he's commanded to write these words specifically, these promises concerning restoration, because writing endures, and the writing of these things to endure is meant to cause his people to endure. The promise lies in the future, so the promises must endure. So that, you'll see, the people endure. This promise of restoration concerns God's people, Israel, and Judah. Remember that since Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two kingdoms. North and south, the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken captive by Assyria many years earlier. And unlike Judah... What you're going to see with Judah's captivity, what you see with the way the Jews maintained their identity, you see that in in Jeremiah concerning the prophecies concerning the exiles. You can see it in, uh, in Esther, in Nehemiah, in Ezra. You can see it in all those post exile works, how they kept their identity through the Babylonian captivity. And that was markedly different than what happened to Israel. Israel assimilated the foreign cultures that they went into, and they were absorbed by those cultures. This is why the Jews despised Samaritans, those, those who dwelled in Samaria, that area that used to be Israel, that area between uh, where you saw a pocket of Jews in Galilee and those in Judea, those who had intermingled and assim- assimilated these foreign cultures and mixed and had this kind of hybrid religion of Jewish elements and pagan elements. That's why they despised them. So this promise of restoring Israel and Judah is first a promise of virtual resurrection. What is basically non-existent will be resurrected. And not only resurrected, but once resurrected, there will be a reunion. And then, only then can the restoration happen. This land was promised to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his twelve sons. The tribes of Israel, it was promised to them. And it is they who will possess it. So, revisit again. Why why is this promise written? Why are these things, this promise, distinctly preserved? Ask yourself, has this happened yet? One might say, yes and no. Parts of it have happened and parts of it haven't. Rather than speaking, though, of parts having happened, as if 1, 2, and 3 happened, but 4, 5, and 6 have not, it would be better, wouldn't it, to say that it's partially happened. It's not as if we're waiting for the completion of a series. It's that the promise in general, everything about the promise, only reached a certain level. It hasn't been fulfilled. The better way to answer the question, has this happened? is not fully, only in part. 
Why are these promises, this book of consolation, written not simply because he's commanded, not simply because Jeremiah might be confined, but why is it that these promises are distinctly said in a book apart from the others? They're, they're a specific section of Jeremiah. There's a way they're emphasized. Why, why is this so? Because these days are coming. And I think it's clear. We'll see it. The reason why these promises are set apart is, is these coming days are meant to cause the people of God to endure and carry on. And so it's as if they emphasize again the same way they would in their original context. They emphasize again that very purpose for the people of God. Saints, does this not, as you begin to consider this, this is written, these promises set aside specifically, emphatically, focused on, does this not, in a sense, these days are coming, think of this, does this not bolster your faith? Does it not give you a new perspective with which you look out on this world in an age where, where there's so much darkness, it seems? Does it not brighten the gloom? Does it not lift you out of the present? To live better in the present, in light of the future that you know lies ahead. Praise God, these things were written. They were written emphatically. They were written with this purpose. Days are coming when Yahweh will restore the fortunes of His people. How many exiles anticipated these days? They, how many exiles anticipated that these days lie ahead, knowing that their generation wouldn't even have any part of them, but knowing... That it was the hope of God's people that lied in front of them. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple would be rebuilt. The city walls built again. And yet, that restoration project had a lot of rust remaining. And a lot of tuning work that needed to be carried out. And only faint traces of that restoration work can be seen today. What are we to conclude? Days are coming. And the past part should assure us of the future full. What, what happened in the past should assure you that God is good on His promises. It shouldn't cause you to doubt. It shouldn't cause you to think that God promises half-heartedly. What he promises here seems really big. And what happened with the return from exile following Cyrus with Nehemiah and Ezra, it just didn't quite match up to what seems to be promised here. Don't think your God promises in that way. That partial fulfillment should assure you of the fullness that's yet to come. Saints, there is a kingdom of unfading glory and splendor, and you are citizens of it. Children of Abraham, heirs to the promise. You have been grafted in. His people are being gathered, and they're being gathered because they've been resurrected out of seeming nothingness. A kingdom lies before us, and therein lies our citizenship, not with this world that's fading away. Why were these things written? They're written to endure for our endurance. They were written for faith. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. They are written for our faith and our hope. And then as we turn to the words themselves, beginning with verse 5, the first collection, the first, the first thing gleaned to put into this specific book from the words that Yahweh has spoken to Jeremiah seems an odd one to open with. Yahweh opens first by saying, we, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and of no peace. This is not a Trinitarian we. Yahweh writes a lament for the people of God in the same way that he wrote one for Jeremiah. You remember in chapter 14? You shall say to them this word, 14 verse 17. So this is Yahweh giving Jeremiah a word. What's the word Yahweh gave Jeremiah? It was a lament for Jeremiah. My Let my eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease for the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound, with a very grievous blow. And then, Yahweh gives Jeremiah a lament for the people of Israel. Chapter 14, 19 through 22. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there's no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing. But behold, terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Yahweh, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your namesake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Yahweh, our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Yahweh's word to them was a word for them to Yahweh. So what's happening here is not unprecedented. Yahweh gives his people a lament. They cry out, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. But the lament is very short. It turns back to a singular I with verse 6. And Yahweh's initial words here, don't then turn us from plucking to planting, from breaking down to building up, from destruction to restoration. They carry on the theme that we've grown accustomed to throughout this book. Men are bent over now in such anguish that it's compared to childbirth. This is an image used at least seven times throughout Jeremiah, and I think Part of the reason that this, part of the meaning of this image is is not just they are in intense anguish, but it's to evoke something of the curse that's come upon them. This is a great day without equal. There is none like it. It's a day of distress. But then this lament turns as the laments so often do in Scripture, in the final stanza, the last line, telling us, yet he shall be saved out of it. The promises of God are no hallucinogenic drug. They're not the opiate of the people. They're not a narcotic for us to escape the woes of this world. The promises more clearly own up to the reality of life under the sun. 
of sin and its curse, of brokenness, of man's anguish. They own up to what life is under the sun and then they call for us to look beyond it. God, in His Word, gives us words to capture our agony, our sorrows, of sin's brokenness. He gives us word to capture these things better than we could. And to express them to us. Express them to Him. And yet, don't forget the final stanza. Yet, He shall be saved out of it. There's always this yet of salvation to the lament that Yahweh gives His people. Almost Always, the best restorations, the most glorious ones, begin with great destruction. Grieve the destruction, but do not grieve as those who have no hope. Lament, but don't forget the yet of salvation. The next section, verses 8 through 11, I think... It's plain by just the way the the verses are formatted and how you have this little prose section. It's a bit poetic, but it introduces this next one. But this this next part is a separate declaration of Yahweh that's been added to this compilation, but it's not completely separate and distinct from what's come before. It's carrying forth a theme. The reason why this one's been tacked on precisely at this point is because of how the two relate. And so... Some speculate we have here that day, and this is the day of deliverance. Some think that this day is distinct from the great day of distress spoken of in verse 7. I don't think that's the case at all. Yes, one's a day of distress, one's a day of deliverance. But a day of deliverance assumes a day of distress that one is delivered out of. It's in the distress. In it. That the day of deliverance comes to them. It shall come to pass. In that day. And on that day the yoke of Babylon will be broken. So that foreigners are no longer making a servant of the people of God. Verse 8. They'll no longer serve a foreigner. They'll serve Yahweh. And David their king. So this is no Bolshevik revolution. This is no... Uh, trade of the tyranny of the one for the anarchy of the many. This is, this is not even the turn for a democratic republic based on Judeo-Christian principles. This is a monarchical theocracy. This is not animal farm, where all animals are equal. This is not manor farm, where a few rule. This is Narnia, where all bow before the roar of the lion. The hope that lies ahead of us is in a king, in God's king, and his absolute rule and authority over all. As Truffle Hunter explained to the irascible Nicobrick concerning the restoration of a human king in Narnia, 
He says, I'm a beast, I am. And a badger, what's more? We don't change. We hold on. I say great good will come of it. This is the true king of Narnia we've got here. A true king coming back to true Narnia. And we beast remember, even if dwarfs forget, that Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam was king. The hope is a king. And the hope of this world is a son of Adam being king. God intended for the dirt under our feet to be ruled by Adam and his offspring. And with the son of David, there's one promised where the rule of God and the rule of one who is a son of Adam come together. The second psalm links God's throne and David's. Telling us, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves together. And the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here, God is promising to His people that the bonds of the nations Upon them will be broken. Here the nations are in rebellion. Saying let us burst. His bond. Cut away his cords. And the response is. He laughs. He who sits in in the heavens laughs. Yahweh holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them like a potter's vessel. This is how the bonds are being broken. That we're reading of right here. By God's king. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. The hope of man is not that a God comes who wants to liberate us to live unto ourselves. We are liberated to serve. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Things will be made right. Things have been made right. For the second Adam, the son of David, was raised up and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and all enemies are being put under His feet. Ezekiel 37 relates this promise, David their king, it relates this promise to the other promises we've seen right here, and the promise as it's going to be spoken of later in the book of Consolation as the New Covenant, saying, I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. 
They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all, their, all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in the land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Again, do you see? Have these things happen? Days are coming. What should be the result that these promises have on the people of God? Verse 10. Now what, now what I've been assuming and telling you, I hope you see it's clear. Why are these things written? Verse 10. Because these days are coming. Because it will come to pass in that day. Israel, Jacob, church. Fear not. Don't be dismayed. In the midst of the great day of judgment, remember, a day is coming. It is certain He will save them from their land of captivity. They will return. None will make them afraid because, verse 11, He is with them to save them. Saints, more certain than they, you can know God is with us. Emmanuel, He has been born. He's come in the flesh. And He rose. He will come again. He will save us. And He will make all things new. And shalom, peace, will be His everlasting covenant rule over His people as He dwells in their midst forevermore. He'll make a full end of the nations, but of His people He will not make a full end. He's disciplined Israel. He disciplines His church. But His actions are not capricious, they are just, and He will not destroy them altogether. He's just, and yet He remains faithful to His merciful promises. Now, the previous section, verses 5 through 11, um, the, the previous section moves forward from, excuse me, verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7 move forward from present suffering to future salvation. And then with verses 8 through 11, you move from that future salvation back to their present suffering. 
He will by no means leave them unpunished. Now, this next section, verses 12 through 17, picks up on this judgment, this present suffering, and moves again forward to future salvation. Verse 12, Judah is to be punished because her hurt is incurable, her wound is grievous. These are not the kind of wounds that demand our pity. These are the self-inflicted wounds of gross immorality. How did Judah come to be in this state? The false prophets acting as her physicians gave a false diagnosis of healthy to a mortally sin-sick soul. Jeremiah 6.14, 8.11, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They've slapped a bandage on an arterial wound and said, All is okay. Their oath was not a Hippocratic one, but a hypocritical one. Instead of promising to do no harm, they promised to speak no harm, and in that way did irreparable harm. They were Kevorkians, calling death life to make their own lives fat. And now, as she lays riddled with this sickness, she finds all her lovers have abandoned her, verse 14. All the foreign nations, you remember that she conspired with in chapter 27? Thinking Babylon would, would fall? They're nowhere to be found. Egypt on which she has relied, has been subdued. All those pagan gods that she has worshipped, now have abandoned her. She finds them impotent, non-existent. They've left her because, verse 14, God has struck her with the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe. They care nothing for you, for because I've dealt you the blow. Ezekiel 16 vividly recalls the story. Israel is born a defiled, bloody mess. And when she grows to age, Yahweh passes by her, takes her, washes her, anoints her, clothes her with beautiful garments, adorns her with riches, and then she uses that beauty to attract adulterous lovers. She uses God's blessings to build perverse idols. She uses God's covenant blessings to break covenant. She's played the harlot using God's favors and now God strikes her and takes those away and the result is that all her lovers leave her. The lovers were attracted to what God had done in her. And now that he removes his grace, they want nothing to do with her. They only love her when she is beautiful. God loved her into that beauty. God's love made her beautiful. And so she should not cry out as though she's confounded by this hurt. Verse 15. It is incurable because her guilt is great. Her sins are flagrant. Yahweh has done this because her guilt is great. Her sins are flagrant. But then, this seems a surprising foot to pivot on with all of this. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. 
the predator will become a prey. Those who have taken them captive will go into captivity. Those who have plundered will be plundered. What's the connection? Hold on, it'll develop. But with this, not only is her her foe dealt with, but he will restore health to them and heal their wounds. Wait a second, the incurable wound is cured? If you think this is a contradiction, you don't understand the sense in which it was incurable and the sense in which it's been cured. Remember whenever Jesus said, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples didn't then reason, well, he's telling us it's really, really difficult. It's hard. You string a camel out far enough, you can get him through. No, they rightly understood this meant salvation's impossible. Who then can be saved? Their thought wasn't, huh, glad I'm poor. They rightly reasoned from this that salvation is impossible with man. Which is exactly what Jesus said. With man, it is impossible, but with God, not with God, for all things are possible with God. It's incurable with man left to himself, not for God. But how does God, being the one who has done this to them because of this gross self-inflicted wound, how does that get us to God pivoting to therefore I will deal with them, inflict a wound on them, and heal yours? Verse 17, I think, is what finally makes sense of this. For, I, uh, not verse 17, the last part of verse 17. Because they have called you an outcast, it is Zion for whom no one cares. Marvel of God's grace is that the instrument that He's used to judge His people is also His ordained means to turn His heart, as it were, back towards His people whenever they speak falsely of them, saying, Behold Israel for whom no one cares. And God says, I do. Don't mistake God using Babylon to think He's pro-Babylon and anti His people with whom He's made a covenant. As soon as they blaspheme in this way, God will make it clear that His covenant doesn't fail. And the next section speaks of restoration and the images that would have been most common to them, most meaningful perhaps. Their fortunes will be restored. The city rebuilt. The palace erected. Verse 18. Songs and celebration will be heard again. Recalling all the feasts and the festivals when they gathered to worship their God. Remember how many times in Jeremiah he's spoken of silencing the voice of mirth and gladness. That the joy of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard anymore in the land. And now, though, there will be a song. 
He will multiply them and make them honored. They will be fruitful. Their children will be as as they were of old. Their congregation established. He will punish their oppressors. Many of these things happened in part with their return under Cyrus. But that that these things have only happened in, in part becomes clear again with verse 21. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. The rebuilding of the city walls, the rebuilding of the temple, even the rebuilding of the temple, Herod's temple, all of those instances of restoration happen under the rule of a pagan king. This is a restoration to happen of that king that will be raised up from among them, the son of David. And this prince, you notice, is also a priest. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. This is priestly language used of one who would approach God in the most holy place in the temple. Because who would dare of himself? No one comes before God unless they come as he's instructed them. That's the imagery. So you have a king here who's a priest. This is David's greater son of whom he sang, saying, Yahweh says to my Lord. David speaks of one of his sons, the Messiah, the promised anointed one, saying, He's my Lord. Yahweh spoke to my Lord, saying, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh has sworn... And will not change his mind. He's speaking to this Lord that David recognizes. Yahweh says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the result of this king and his drawing near is the reality, the covenant reality, the most simple Words that I think encapsulate the heart of the covenant that are spoken again and again throughout Scripture. The result of this king, what all these promises have been based upon again and again, is this king, and it's this covenant reality. Verse 22, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Once again, though, We move from this future hope back to their present hurt with verse 23. It seems an odd final note to end this first part of the book of Consolation with, right? Behold the storm of Yahweh. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. And so the first thing you might be tempted to do, I was, was think this has to be the wicked of the nations. But the way this book of consolation is going, you can't end on this note. This has to be the wicked of the nations. And the problem with trying to force that square peg into this round hole is that this is taken almost verbatim from chapter 23, 19 through 20. Why Jeremiah, whenever, why Yahweh, whenever you're looking for promises that you're calling from Jeremiah's ministry to put them in this specific and smaller book? Uh, I don't like Bible promise books because they're all detached, but Jeremiah was writing a Bible promise book. Why did this one get 
Imagine you're going through your Bible promise book and you see this text. Why did that one make the book? It's the last line that I think is the focused again, just as that lament was earlier. In the latter days, you will understand this. In the presence of the king, I'm, not, I'm certain this is not telling us you'll have your every curiosity answered. I think it's simply saying in the latter days, when all is restored, and you see the king in his glory, you'll understand. It's the understanding of peace, contentment, and rest. He need not give you the specifics. Beholding Him, you have understanding. We will not wonder on that day why the rays of His favor were so often preceded by the storm of His wrath. In the latter days you will understand this. And the sense of why that is, of the meaning of that, is brought out with the next part of the compilation that's added in here. It, in a sense, concludes. The previous one introduces the new. It transitions. But again, I think Jeremiah is arranging this. God is arranging this masterfully. These different words that are being assembled and the way you understand in the latter days you will understand this. And what the, the implication involved there is, verse 31, verse 1, chapter 31, verse 1. At that time, declares Yahweh, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Why did, why did verses 23 through 24, why did they make this promise book that Jeremiah is writing? That last line. In the latter days, you will understand this. Have these things fully happened? Not yet. This is a restoration project. And it was a restoration project of a restoration project that had, that had gone bad. That had deteriorated. Whenever the original project itself, wasn't a complete restoration. Whenever God brought His people into the promised land, it was an echo of Eden and an anticipation of things made new. It never matched up to not simply what was lost, it never matched up to what was ultimately hoped for. Abraham hoped for a city whose builder and maker was God. They never possessed it. Even the kingdom under David and Solomon in its brightest glory was never everything they had hoped and longed for. It was a restoration project that had deteriorated. And now, what is being spoken of here is a restoration project of that restoration project. But one day, every bit of sin's curse 
Every bit of rust will be removed. Not just removed, not just a restoration, but it will be made new. It will be the same and yet made new, a new creation. And we've already tasted of that in part and the fullness is yet ahead. Days are coming. You've been resurrected spiritually. Your soul made new, but you long for the resurrection of your body. The saints are being gathered, but they're not fully assembled yet. All Israel, the true Israel, the people of God in total will one day be gathered, unified. Why were these things written? Because days are coming. They're written that you might not fear. They're written to endure so that you might endure. They were written as your hope. They were written so we might anticipate the day, the, anticipate the day when this rust bucket shines with a glory that surpasses the original. Do not fear. Days are coming. He will come again. He is with us. In the latter days, we will understand this. John John Piper's poem about Job ends with these fitting lines. Behold the mercy of our King, who takes from death its bitter sting, and by His blood and often ours, Brings triumph out of hostile powers. And paints with crimson earth and soul. Until the bloody work is whole. What we have lost. God will restore. That. And himself. Forevermore. When he is finished with his art. The quiet worship of our heart. When God creates a humble hush and makes Leviathan his brush, it won't be long before the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Forgive us our unbelief. When we are shaken, may we look to You knowing You are not and Your promises are sure and certain and You are sovereign. That all things work together for our good. Father, may we cling to Your promises, these truths. Thank you that they're not just written for us, but they are emphatically written. May we endure. May we we not fear. May we be lifted out of this present. To live as those who belong to the age to come. Praise be to you. 
for your unfailing covenant love to sinners such as we. Father, gather your church. Be glorified in her. In Christ's name, amen.